Chapter Thirteen of Meridiana: The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Meridiana: The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter Thirteen: Pacification by Fire. At the camp, Colonel Everest and his colleagues, with a natural impatience, anxiously abided the result of the lion hunt. If the chase proved successful, the light would appear in the course of the night. The colonel and Strux passed the day uneasily. Palander, always engrossed, forgot that any danger menaced his friends. It might be said of him, as of the mathematician Bouvard, he will continue to calculate while he continues to live, for apart from his calculations, life for him would have lost its purpose. The two chiefs certainly thought quite as much of the accomplishment of their survey as of any danger incurred by their companions. They would themselves have braved any peril rather than have a physical obstacle to arrest their operations. At length, after a day that seemed interminable, the night arrived. Punctually every half-hour, the colonel and Matthew Strux silently relieved guard at the telescope, each desiring to be the first to discover the light. But hours passed on, and no light appeared. At last, at a quarter to three, Colonel Everest arose and calmly said, The signal! The Russian, although he did not utter a word, could scarcely conceal the chagrin which he felt at chance favoring the colonel. The angle was then carefully measured, and was found to be exactly 73 degrees, 58 minutes, 42.413 seconds. Colonel Everest being anxious to join his companions as soon as possible, the camp was raised at dawn, and by midday all the members of the commission had met once more. The incidents of the lion hunt were recounted, and the victors heartily congratulated. During the morning, Sir John, Emery, and Zorn had proceeded to the summit of the mountain, and had thence measured the angular distance of a new station situated a few miles to the west of the meridian. Polander also announced that the measurement of the second degree was now complete. For five weeks all went on well. The weather was fine, and the country, being only slightly undulated, offered fair sights for the stations. Provisions were abundant, and Sir John's revictualling expeditions proved full many a variety of antelopes and buffalo. The general health was good, and water could always be found. Even the discussions between the colonel and Strux were less violent, and each seemed to vie with the other in zeal for success, when a local difficulty occurred which for a while hindered the work and revived hostilities. It was the 11th of August. During the night the caravan had passed through a wooded country, and in the morning halted before an immense forest, extending beyond the horizon. Imposing masses of foliage formed a verdant curtain which was of indescribable beauty. There were the Gunda, the Mosokoso, and the Mkumdun, a wood much sought for shipbuilding. Great ebony trees, their bark covering a perfectly black wood, Valhinias with fibre of iron, Bukneras with their orange-coloured flowers, magnificent rudeblats with their whitish trunks, crowned with crimson foliage, and thousands of guaicums measuring fifteen feet in circumference. There was even a murmur like that of the surf on the sandy coast. It was the wind, which, passing across the branches, was calmed on the skirts of the forest. In answer to a question from Colonel, Mokum said, It is the forest of Ravulma. What is its size? It's about forty-five miles wide and ten long. How should we cross it? Cross it we cannot, said Mokum. There is but one resource. We must go round either to the east or to the west. At this intelligence, the chiefs were much perplexed. In the forest they could not establish stations. To pass round would involve them in an additional series of perhaps ten auxiliary triangles. Here was difficulty of no little magnitude. Encamping in the shade of a magnificent grove about half a mile from the forest, the astronomers assembled in council. The question of surveying across the mass of trees was at once set aside, and it now remained to determine whether they could make the circuit to the east or west, since the meridian passed as nearly as possible through the centre of the forest. 
On this point arose a violent discussion between the Colonel and Strux. The two rivals recovered their old animosity, and the discussion ended in a serious altercation. Their colleagues attempted to interfere, but to no purpose. The Englishman wished to turn to the right, since that direction approached the route taken by Dr. Livingstone in his expedition to the Zambezi Falls, and the country would on that account be more known and frequented. The Russian, on the contrary, insisted on going to the left, but apparently for no other reason than to thwart the colonel. The quarrel went on so far that a separation between the members of the commission seemed imminent. Zorn, Emery, Sir John, and Palander withdrew and left their chiefs to themselves. Such was their obstinacy that it seemed as if the survey must continue from this point in two oblique series of triangles. The day passed away without any reconciliation, and the next morning Sir John, finding matters still in the same condition, proposed to Mokwum to beat the neighborhood. Perhaps, meanwhile, the astronomers would come to an understanding. Anyway, some fresh venison would not be despised. Mokwum, always ready, whistled to his dog Top, and the two hunters ventured several miles from the encampment. The conversation naturally turned on the subject of the difficulty. I expect, said the bushman, we shall be encamped some time here. Our two chiefs are like two ill-paired oxen. One pulls one way, and the other another. And the consequence is that the wagon makes no headway. It's all very sad, answered Sir John, and looks like a separation. The interests of science are compromised. Otherwise, I should be indifferent to it all. I should amuse myself with my gun until the rivals make it up. Do you think they will make it up? For my part, I am always afraid that our halt will be indefinitely prolonged. I fear so, Mokwum, replied Sir John. The matter is so trivial, and it is no question of science. Our chiefs would doubtless have yielded to a scientific argument, but they will never make concession in a pure matter of opinion. How unfortunate that the meridian happens to cross this forest. Hang the forest, exclaimed the bushman. Don't let them stop your measuring if you want to measure, but I can't see the good of your getting at the length and breadth of the earth. Who will be any better off when everything is reduced to feet and inches? I should just like to think of the globe as infinite. To measure it is to make it small. No, Sir John, if I were to live forever, I can never understand the use of your operations. Sir John cannot help smiling. They had often debated the subject, and the ignorant child of nature could evidently not enter into the interest attached to the survey. Whenever Sir John attempted to convince him, he answered eloquently with arguments stamped with a genuine naturalness, of which Sir John, half savant, half hunter, could fully appreciate the charm. Thus conversing, the hunters pursued the rock hares, the shrill-toned plovers, the partridges, with brown, yellow, and black plumage, and other small game. But Sir John had all the sport to himself. The bushman seldom fired. He was preoccupied. The quarrel between the two astronomers seemed to trouble him more than it did his companion, and the variety of game hardly attracted his notice. In truth, there was an idea floating through his brain, which, little by little, took more definite form. Sir John heard him talking to himself, and watched him as he quietly let the game pass by, as engrossed as Palander himself. Two or three times in the course of the day he drew near Sir John and said, Do you really think that Colonel Everest and Mr. Strux will not come to terms? Sir John invariably replied that agreement seemed unlikely, and that he feared there would be a separation between the Englishman and Russian. The last time Mokwum received this answer, he added, Well, you may be easy. I have found a means to satisfy both the chiefs. Before tomorrow, if the wind is favorable, they will have nothing to quarrel about. What do you mean to do, Mokwum? Never mind, Sir John. Very well, I'll leave it to you. You deserve to have your name preserved in the annals of science. That would be too great an honor for me, Sir John, answered the bushman, and then continued silently to ponder over his project. Sir John made no further inquiries, but could not at all guess how the bushman proposed to reunite the two adversaries. Toward evening the hunters returned to camp, and found matters even worse than before. The oft-repeated intervention of Zorn and Emery had been of no avail, and the quarrel had now reached some height that reconciliation seemed impossible. It appeared only too probable that the survey would be continued in two separate directions. The thought of this was sorrowful to Emery and Zorn, who were now so nearly bound by mutual sympathy. Sir John guessed their thoughts, and was eager to reassure them. 
but however much he was secretly disposed to trust to the bushman he abstained from raising any hopes which might be fallacious throughout the evening mokoum did not leave his ordinary occupations he arranged the sentinels and took the usual precautions sir john began to think that he had forgotten his promise before going to rest he tried to sound colonel everest whom he found immovably resolved that unless strux yielded the english and russians must part there are things added the colonel in a tone of decision that cannot be borne even from a colleague sir john very uneasy retired to his bed and being fatigued with his day's sport was soon asleep toward eleven o'clock he was suddenly aroused by the natives running to and fro in the camp he quickly rose and found every one on their feet the forest was on fire in the dark night against the black sky the curtains of flame seemed to rise to the zenith and in this incredibly short time the fire had extended for several miles sir john looked at mokwum who standing near made no answer to his glance but he at once understood the fire was designed to open a road through that forest which had stood impervious for ages the wind from the south was favourable the air rushing as from a ventilator accelerated the conflagration and furnished an ever fresh supply of oxygen it animated the flames and kept the kindled branches burning like a myriad brands the scattered fragments became new centres for fresh outbreaks of flame the scene of the fire became larger and the heat grew intense the dead wood piled under the dark foliage crackled and ever and anon louder reports and a brighter light told that the resinous trees were burning like torches then followed explosions like cannonades as the great trunks of ironwood burst asunder with a reverberation as of bomb the sky reflected the glow and the clouds carried the rosy glare high aloft showers of sparks emitted from the wreaths of smoke studded the heavens like red-hot stars then on every side were heard the howls shrieks and bellowings of herds of bewildered hyenas buffaloes and lions Elephants rushed in every direction like huge dark spectres, and disappeared beyond the horizon. The fire continued throughout the following day and night, and when day broke on the 14th, a vast space, several miles wide, had been opened across the forest. A passage was now free for the meridian. The daring genius of Mokwum had arrested the disaster which threatened the survey. End of chapter 13